everybody. Welcome back. Uh, we're excited to sort of be back at you. There you go. Kim Nong's with me. Part two. This is Pat, by yeah. the way. This is part two from the other recording. Part one. <laughs> so this is Pat, and I'm here with Kim Nong, and we are um, excited to have Teresa Mosqueda in the studio with us. Yay! Thank, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> she is us. a candidate for King County Council member. Mm-hmm. Is that right? District, District eight. eight. District Eight. And so go. we're excited to have you, Teresa. Thank you. And can you? Would you like to tell us? Some things about yourself? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here, to be here in community. We are just one week out from the election right. night. Uh, so if you still have those ballots sitting on your kitchen table, get those in. Tell 10 of your friends it is time to vote. Voter turnout in there the primary go. was so low. So getting the word out and having this podcast and this week is so incredibly appreciated. Thank you. I'm Teresa Mosqueda. I am running for King County Council District 8, which great is great um, because this is our opportunity to create representative democracy. We talk a lot about making sure that our representatives represent our community and in District 8 and frankly in King County in a community that has nearly half the population people of color and a quarter immigrant and refugees. We have never had a Latino, Latina ever sitting on King County wow. Council. So do you hear that glass shattering? I do. <laughs> uh, we're about to make history. I'm a third generation Mexican-American, uh, Chicana. I, I believe in the Chicanismo ideology that uh, borders didn't cross us, or we didn't cross the border, border crossed us, and we all have um, community in common. I am excited that we live here in North Delridge area in District 8. My husband and I raising our daughter, Camila. She's just turned four this month. And my husband, his name's Manuel. He um, is from Guatemala and immigrated here um, just around 10 years old. So we're raising our family here. We're, we're living um, near parks and, and buses, and we have access to small businesses, and we have the ability to live in the city. And that's what I want for everybody, to be able to have the ability to live in their community next to parks and schools and child cares and senior centers and community centers and for anybody, uh, no matter where they came from, how more recently they moved to this area, if they've been here for generations, to be able to stay in the community that they love. And so for me, it's all about creating a sense of place and community. And when we do so, that improves population health and community health. So that's a little bit about me. Thank you. Can you do us a favor? Yeah. Can you tell who's Teresa from the beginning up to this point? We want to know yeah. that part also of who you were, what you did in your past life. Um, and you know, what got you to this moment here and why are you here at this moment? Absolutely. So I, I grew up actually in the South end of Puget Sound in Olympia, um, born in Denver. As I mentioned, my dad's second generation Mexican American. So I'm third. Um, my parents always instilled in me a sense of, um, fighting for what's right, fighting against systems of oppression, fighting with community who's been on the receiving end of the isms in our community and questioning authority. You know, some of my earliest memories are me and my little sister making our own hand-painted signs and going to the Capitol buildings and marching in the street with our own signs. 
I remember art projects, decorating coffee cans, collecting donations at the front door wow. when my parents were hosting, you know, fundraisers and educational events to talk about what was going on in Central America, mm-hmm. specifically in Nicaragua and El Salvador. My dad is a professor of political economy and social change. My mom is an early education teacher and worked for the Higher Education Coordinating Board. Hmm. But they've always been focused on sort of international, global crises and how the United States has had a role in perpetuating harm or violence or war or taking people's land or privatizing water or privatizing education systems, right? That's been the focus of what, you know, my dad taught. We talked about it a lot growing up. And when I went to school and started studying, you know, public policy and international studies, you see how those same systems of oppression exist within our own country and exist within our own community. When we don't invest in public school, when we don't invest in public health, when we create, you know, a reliance on the private sector, we're in essence outsourcing the very public goods that should be invested into community regularly. And that is something that I have taken throughout my career, right? I start, you asked what I did in my previous life. <laughs> I actually, you know, study public policy, international studies. But my first job was at CMAR, Community Health Centers, right here in District 8, down in South Park, wow. leading a program for seniors um, who wanted access to meal programs. And as we brought them in for meal programs in community centers, we'd ask, hey, do you need health care? Do you need housing? What else can we connect you with? And these are, you know, elders who should be in retirement, but we're working one, two, and three jobs as elders. Our systems had failed them. And to me, working in CMAR, seeing one-on-one how incredibly important it was for an entity like CMAR Community Health Centers to provide that social safety net, yes, we must invest in that. And to me, it also instilled, we got to do more, and we got to do it upstream. So that's when I decided... I'm going to go get my master's in public administration, Mm. focus on public policy, try to change those systems upstream. And I worked at Department of Health and I worked at Children's Alliance fighting for health care for all kids, regardless of immigration status. I worked on the implementation of the Affordable Care Act through the Community Health Network of Washington. And then I worked for labor. And people were like, how'd you go from working on health policy, you know, Department of Health, CMAR, Community Health Network, Children's Alliance, to then working in labor? Well, the answer is really clear, right? If we want people to be healthy, Yes, we have to fight like hell for that health insurance card in our wallets and in our pockets and for everybody to have universal access to health care. But if we want people to be healthy in the long term, they need access to a good living wage job, to be able to speak up when they're experiencing retaliation, to be free from toxic people in their workplace and toxins. So prior to coming to Seattle City Council, I worked at the Washington State Labor Council fighting for those public policy systems to improve worker standards for all workers in every sector because all work has dignity and every workers deserve respect and and a living wage uh, job. And then when I worked at, uh, there for seven years, people kept saying, why aren't you going to be running for office? You keep telling people to run for office. And when the seat at Seattle City Council opened up, I ran for that. But I never left that that prior um, career, like you, you mentioned, right? I didn't have like that disconnect because when you work on public policy, it's all about investing in health. Yeah. And to me, that's what King County Council offers as well. Wow. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> There's a lot in, in there. I'm going to think about, I'm going to listen to this show and think a lot about that. <laughs> so I've heard you say that um, the way that you are, that you want to approach homelessness is through public health that you you believe that our homeless situation is a public health issue and I just wanted to hear more about that absolutely I mean I think that's where we have common ra- common ground with folks uh, who are frustrated with the the situation across the board 
you see people that are sleeping outside and experiencing life in the elements. As someone who is seeing people suffer outside, you see that as a public health crisis. For the folks who are experiencing homelessness, it is a public health crisis Mm -hmm. where you're going to lay your head at night and not knowing whether or not you have a safe, dry place to put your head down and make sure your family's safe or your loved ones. It is a public health crisis for the individuals who are experiencing homelessness, and it's a public health crisis for our community in terms of the psyche and the health of our community to see people suffering outside, especially in one of the richest areas in the entire country, in the wealthiest country in the world. Right. It's a crisis. And to me, treating public, uh, treating uh, homelessness as a public health crisis means investing in the root cause. The root cause is needing housing, but also health services to keep people stably housed and make sure that they can stay stably housed in the long run. So I'm wondering, what is the pushback of that stance? Like, because I've actually talked about it just with my friends. And yeah, I want to know what the pushback of sort of approaching homelessness from that end seems to be. Well, there shouldn't be any. Right. Uh, there should not be any because it truly is a public health crisis. We have, you know, na- uh, national journals, international journals talking about how homelessness is a public health crisis. And they go on to say every time you move somebody from one corner to another or try to push people or sweep right. them out, right. out of view, it further exacerbates the health crisis of mm-hmm. being homeless. It is harder for the uh, workers who are trying to house people to find people when housing becomes available. It's harder to find those folks to get them into the health services or the job opportunities that the caseworkers are helping them get into. It is bad from a management and efficiency point to move people around, and it's also bad for their health. It is Hmm. more likely that people will um, self-medicate or have additional mental health crises when they experience that kind of trauma of getting moved around. So that is a public health problem when we do that. Now, the pushback, I think, is that people want to see immediate solutions. And it's um, frustrating as well for, for me, you know, coming at this from a public health perspective as well. We all want immediate solutions. But you cannot just move people out of sight. And recognizing that it takes time sometimes to rebuild trust with community members who have been harmed by systems, whether that's previous congregate shelters mm-hmm. or the health care system itself or the foster care system. Many people have experienced trauma at the hands of, quote, unquote, government. So trusting people again and building relationships takes time. That's why it's important to fund community organizations to do this outreach work. It's important to give those community organizations time to build those relationships and then to make sure that people get stably housed in the the right kind of bed, not just any bed that people might um, be offered, right? It's not enough to tell someone, hey, we got a bed for you, but not for your partner, not for your pet, and not for your possessions. That does not keep people stably housed. So that takes a little bit of time sometimes. And I know that there's frustration in wanting to see immediate solutions. I have to underscore, especially from a public health perspective, it is not a solution to move people out of sight It is more of a long-term solution to get people into the right appropriate care and to ensure that we have the workforce funded and invested in to help get people stably housed. Okay. Um, As I hear that, I'm thinking, what does that time frame look like? Um, What what does that light at the end of the tunnel look like? And it, it sounds like it's stable housing, but in a nutshell, that is a complex maneuvering private sector public sector, money, um, land, zoning, Mm -hmm. all of those things. Mm -hmm. 
in in that aspect, you're dealing with a lot of jurisdiction um, and a lot of county council, city council, uh, housing, King County housing, all of that. How does that happen? It doesn't even seem possible. How does that happen, though? I think it's possible when you have people in office who want to get to yes, who want to find solutions, who know the power of reaching across jurisdictions and reaching across ideologies and finding solutions. That's what I've done. Uh, take, for example, what's going on in Tequila right now, a slightly different type of houselessness, but for refugees that are coming to this region, right. our, our community members in Tequila are stepping up. Right. The elected officials in Tequila are stepping up. They have declared a state of emergency, and they are working hand in glove with the county to try to find solutions hmm. to get people into stable housing. And as housing, or in the immediate Emergency housing vouchers or hotel vouchers are being freed up for the very vulnerable community members there. We're working to help make sure that there's a large FEMA-style tent that can be offered to folks who are on the church property to get them out of the rain and the snow's coming soon and out of the cold and get them into a safer place, a warmer place for folks to live. That is a good example of where local jurisdictions in partnership with King County can step in and try and act more quickly. Um, and I've tried to do the same at Seattle City Council, right? We've invested in tiny house villages, which is a fast way to stand up, a place for people to have a door and a roof and their belongings and their loved ones inside. Barb the Builder from the Hope Factory, which is also located in District 8, just down in Soto, they are cranking out tiny house villages. And we have partners across this region who are ready to put uh, those those villages together and also have the staff capacity to get people services. Sometimes the biggest barrier is the land, right? So at the county, I would love to work with our lo local jurisdictions and neighbors to help find land to make sure that any questions and concerns from neighbors are addressed. With, with funding that is available, we can invest in security, sanitation, case management, get those tiny house villages up as a temporary measure as we get people into housing. And then to your other point about this being a long-term thing, we can do those things now while we build affordable housing. In Seattle City Council, I have quadrupled the investment into affordable housing. I'm talking half a billion dollars over this biennial budget, thanks to Jumpstart Progressive Payroll Tax in large part. We assess the largest companies with the highest salaries in Seattle and said, it is actually good for the local economy if you don't have people sleeping on your doorsteps. It is good for the prosperity of everyone if those most prosperous co corporations are paying a little bit in. And with that funding, we've been able to quadruple our investments in affordable housing and to do it with the community that's been most affected by displacement at the front of the line. We changed the policy and we called it the Community Self-Determination Fund so that community organizations like Filipino Community Center, Africa Town, uh, Skip the PDA, organizations led by communities of color with the highest risk of displacement, they're now at the front of the line to receive access to affordable housing capital dollars. So it's the both and approach. Yes, get people into emergency housing and shelter services while we also build more housing. Lots to think about. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a question in my head I'm trying to form. Um, so what would you... How is the housing, lack of housing situation going in Seattle, in the city of Seattle? So, like, presently, I mean, would you say that we're we're making progress? Would you say that from all that you just shared, are we in a good, good situation? Because I think when the average person drives down to Seattle, they're super frustrated with people on the street, living, living in the, 
you know, on the, on the freeways and all that. So like, when will you know that what you're doing and what the path that you want to take is, is working? Mm-hmm. Well, let's just also acknowledge that when you're living unsheltered, the, the exact line between White Center and Seattle or Burien and Tequila, those are not borders that you see as an individual mm-hmm. when you're right. seeking services for your family. That's right. Right? And, for example, in a place like Burien, where people are getting moved around instead of directly housed, it is possible that people are trying to find services. And so people will go to where they need to go right. to make sure that their immediate needs are met. The situation that we see playing out in Seattle is not just a Seattle issue, right? It is a regional issue. It's a national issue. Most, yep. most actually large cities across this nation are seeing an increase in homelessness, and it is a dramatic increase in homelessness for cities on the West Coast because right. we have a more moderate climate, right? We're um, a place that people know it's not going to be extremely hot or extremely cold, and so they might be able to weather some of those um, temperatures. People are coming here as well. Like we have um, not only uh, an increase in our um, homeless population, many of those folks were here prior to being coming right. homeless, but many of them were pushed out of the housing that they currently have because there's an influx of people who are moving to our region. In fact, Seattle has a 21% increase in its population in the last decade. And just last year in 2022, Seattle was named the largest, fastest growing city in the entire nation. So if more people are coming and we don't have enough housing for our existing population, when people come here and they have slightly higher salaries, maybe they're working in the tech sector or they got another good paying job, if we don't have enough housing stock in general, then people end up pricing out and pushing out those who make just slightly less. That means that people at 50% of the area median income are maybe pricing out people at 30% of the area median income. And at 30% of the area median income, there is very few housing options for you at that lowest income. You get pushed out in the street or you get pushed out of the the city, Um, pushed out into the street or out of the city to find another affordable unit. So it's a a crisis um, that is affecting our entire region. But I would say we are scaling up investments in affordable housing. Again, um, half a billion dollars over the biennium in affordable housing in Seattle. And I just increased that number last week in our budget. And I think for just 2024, we have about $300,000 that are going for affordable housing. So much more is needed. And we got to build faster and quicker. One of the things I'd like to do at King County, for example, is expedite the building process, especially for our unincorporated areas like White Center. Vashon Island, in District 8, many of the folks in in the area that have been talking about building affordable housing have told me stories about how they had to wait years for permitting to get approved. And in the meantime, the cost of building that affordable housing went up millions of dollars. If the county can help waive some fees, especially for building affordable housing, and waive the timelines, that helps reduce the cost and we can get more people moved into housing faster. Where do you think that clog is within the system? Where where is that... Because I'm sure there's really competent people doing whatever they're doing. There has to be something that is clogging. What would you say from, I guess, your thought within this topic, what has been the clog within the process? Well, I'll speak to where I think there's a clog in the process in Seattle because I look forward to digging into um, the process in King County. Hopefully, knock on wood, uh, if the election goes our way on November 7th, get your ballots in. Um, But in Seattle, we have seen the approved permit rate decrease in the last two years. Uh, That is a problem as we try to create more housing. It's also a problem for revenue. We actually get 
money from housing developers and developers in general who are putting in their permits to the city of Seattle. That's an economic revenue generator for the city. And when we see permits being stalled or not being approved as fast as they used to pre-pandemic in 2019, those numbers were much higher than they are in 2022 and 2023. Um, That, to me, means that we need to provide more resources to the permitting uh, department to expedite that. We put forward a few additional full-time employee uh, positions to our permitting department in Seattle just last year, but the numbers have not dramatically increased. We need to be helping people, especially our organizations that are run by folks of color who are trying to step into this arena, who've seen their community get displaced, who want to find solutions. We need to be providing technical assistance to help people get through that process. And that's something that I think is um, both an an equity issue to do, but it can also help expedite those permits. Were you able, or has Seattle been able to implement anything that led towards that direction of supporting those folks that you're mentioning are just expediting or the BIPOC community and actually entering those types of spaces. Is there something that's been stood up or it's on its way? Yeah, we have stood something up. And I'm going to um, give you the example from the work that we did with the housing roundtable that I convene quarterly. And these are mostly led by individuals from the BIPOC community living in and rooted in the community um, that is most at risk of displacement now. Thanks to Tim Iman, I couldn't say in the statute just for communities of color, but I can say for communities at highest risk of displacement who happen to be BIPOC community members. We were meeting with our um, uh, community housing roundtable and we were celebrating the passage of Jumpstart Progressive Payroll Tax. So excited that 62% of those millions of dollars, you know, near $250 million comes in each year from Jumpstart. 62% of that goes to affordable housing. People were like, that's fantastic. But we as community members from the communities of color who are trying to stand up and create affordable housing, we're newer to this arena. We are getting placed at the back of the line. And that is not fair for us to have to go out and have proof of concept to private lenders, banks, philanthropy, and then come to the city. The city of Seattle used to say, come to us as your lender of last resort. Well, that is not equitable. We changed the table and we said, we're going to create a community self-determination fund through through the housing funds so that the city of Seattle is the lender of first resort. Then you can go to the bank and say, look, the city of Seattle believes in me. Then you can go to private um, lenders and say, the city of Seattle believes in me. And you are more likely to get people put funding in. We changed the process and the policy to increase funding, but that wasn't enough, and then put community of color folks at the front who are trying to build housing through the lens of what the community wants. So if you've ever been to uh, the Roberto Maestra Plaza on Beacon Hill and seen the incredible housing that El Centro de la Raza has built, right? It has a plaza, it has affordable housing, it has right. childcare, community center, all those things. That's the model of what we wanted to do, but it took them seven years to get approval from the city to do the art and the plaza and the housing. And now we've taken that model and we said, no one should have to wait seven years when our community is at risk of being displaced or being pushed into the street. So we've expedited the process. And what's resulted? Filipino Community Center has been able to build the Filipino community village using that funding. We have funding going out through SCIPTA PDA um, that has created the thir- uh, 13th and FUR um, facility that has affordable housing, especially for the API community with childcare on the first floor. We've helped to put funding into the North Lot where 
uh, the old um, packed tower used to be, and we're creating senior housing plus affordable family housing, mixed income housing, so there will be some market rate along with child care and a senior program as well. Where's that one? That's on the north lot of the old packed tower. Do you remember Amazon used to have that building for a while? Right. And now we've turned it into, we've taken out that parking space. And we've created affordable housing. Hmm. So those are some examples. Um, Africatown Community Land Trust is another great example of a community organization that has been able to access Jumpstart Progressive Payroll Tax, helping to put people at the front of the line. But those are also good examples of organizations that have had to blaze trails and show the value and the uh, worth of what community wants to do to create affordable housing because they had often been left out. And now we're saying, you've done it. We shouldn't have to make people have to blaze that trail again. Let's put folks at the front of the line, especially uh, folks who are rooted in communities at highest risk of displacement. Thank you. I think, you know, I love this conversation. I think housing is very important. I think also it goes hand in hand with economics, mm-hmm. wealth, family. Uh, you mentioned it very briefly. Like in order for us to kind of really self-sustain at the end of the day, the <laughs> economic aspect of our communities need right. to grow with tons of I would say government hands in some of these affordable housing in these things that I won't say manufactured the free market, but it's slightly an assistance to it. When a person of color goes and they get into affordable housing, they don't necessarily leave with any type of asset that they can pass on. They don't necessarily leave with any type of asset that they can leverage to start another business. And it kind of circumvents what traditionally has built wealth in America throughout ages. Hmm. How does that support a BIPOC individual who's trying to just try to, you know, get a house that they own, uh, get a HELOC from it or pass it on or parlay that for another one that's even bigger and so on and so on. You don't become necessarily a, a person that is currently in the free market and just using it the way it's been freely designed, organically designed. Um, And you're kind of at the end of your affordable housing state. You look around and you're kind of still in that same position. Mm -hmm. So how does that kind of connect to each other for us to have housing for folks, but at the same time be able to build wealth economically for families while they're here also? Okay. I love this question. So (laughs) let me, let me just, um, let me reframe us a little bit, right? Yeah. The free market's not building affordable housing. The free market is looking for opportunities to create profit. That's that's what the free market does. They look for ways to um, create a product that yields a little bit of profit. And to build affordable housing often does not yield a profit. So you don't have the private sector largely investing in building affordable housing for you know the very low-income folks between 0% and 30, even 50% of the area median income. I'm talking about very low-income workers. And so what you see is without that affordable housing being built by the private sector and the free market, the folks at the lowest end, as I mentioned, are getting pushed out and priced out because housing is being built for people in the low to moderate income housing. But without that other options, people are really um, squeezing out the lowest income folks. So here's a way, though, that I, uh, I think what you said connects to what I've tried to do through public policy. We know that in this country, unlike most other, quote unquote, capitalist, quote unquote, developed countries, there is um, no retirement security that is truly accessible to everybody here. We have Social Security. 
It is challenge, I think, for many people only on a social security check to make ends meet. Lots of other countries have uh, more robust retirement systems that they invest in. They also have different tax models that allow for people to pay in over the years, and they have a tax model that allows for corporations and more wealthy people to pay higher amounts. But for lack of having a true retirement system in this country, owning your own home is one of the only ways to ensure retirement security, right? It creates equity. It creates opportunity. It creates something that you can then sell and create additional wealth and you can buy something bigger if you want, right? That's the dream. That's the American dream. That's the promise. But without having enough housing stock in our region, it is very hard for people to find that next starter home to build. So when you get a starter home and you're not creating that next opportunity, we're not building more housing, people aren't moving out of those quote unquote starter homes. And with the interest rates as high as they are right now, lots of people are saying, I, I, there's no way I could even move out of my house if I wanted to, because I'm not going to start another loan at that amount. And where I could buy is really far out of the community that I live in. So Number one, on supply. We're not creating enough of the supply to allow for the market itself to work, and the market itself is not creating that supply alone. Number two, to help combat that, and I think that the value add that we are doing through public investments is creating starter homes. So with Jumpstart Progressive Payroll Taxes I talked about, it's not just creating one-bedroom unit for rental or a studio for rental. We're talking about first-time home ownership opportunities as well. We're investing in building homes that allow for people to buy their houses and have a unit that then they own, and that's creating equity in their pocketbook, and it's creating a more equitable society. And then when they do decide to sell it, they are selling it for somewhat of a profit, but it's at a lower lower margin than on the private market. But it allows people to have that first step, that first opportunity, then they can launch from there. I've been pretending to know what I know jumpstart. W- w- say it again. Okay, jumpstart progressive yes. payroll tax. I've been shaking my head down. like I knew what I meant, <laughs> but like let's break that down. We heard it a couple times already, and I'm pretty sure our listeners was like, "What is this? It sounds great." Break it down for us, please. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for asking. Okay, well, I will say that it is great. And a poll was done um, from folks in Seattle when they asked, uh, do, you, do you approve of Jumpstart? Two-thirds of people who were polled said that they do like it. So let me tell you what it is. It is uh, a tax that I helped to lead the passage of as COVID was hitting our community. In 2020, in March, we knew that the revenues for our region were going to take a dramatic downturn because – Our state, our region relies heavily on sales tax. And you can remember early 2020 when COVID hit, people weren't going out and shopping. They weren't, you know, doing business as usual. The revenue projections for our city were going to take a dramatic downturn. And we knew that there was going to be incredible hardship if there was not sufficient funding and more people were going to need access to government services like food assistance and housing assistance in the middle of the COVID crisis. We um, worked to build off of previous year's efforts that had tried to move forward a progressive tax on our largest corporations in our region. And what I was able to accomplish with the incredible leadership of my staff, Sejal Parikh and Aaron House, um, who were part of our team, we worked across business and labor, community and housing advocates, and we found common ground. The tax is on the largest corporations in Seattle. So if you have a payroll tax, if you have a payroll that is larger than about $8.1 million in Seattle payroll, then you're potentially going to be taxed. Then What's the next the number again? $8.1 million in Seattle payroll. So it's the largest, largest companies with the, with the largest um, payroll in the region. And then the second question is, do you have employees that make about 100 and let's say $65,000, $170,000 a year? 
if you have employees that are making that amount, we're going to lever a tax on your corporation, not on the employees, on the corporation. And so those corporations then have to pay a tax to the city of Seattle if they are have that high level of a payroll and they have that high level of salary. And that helps us get at the larger corporations who are doing really well, who especially did well in the pandemic, right? Think about how many people were buying items online. Uh, they did well in the pandemic. They're, they are doing well in the city of Seattle. We have incredible homelessness and housing crisis, as you mentioned at the beginning. We have needs to re- refill potholes in our streets so goods can get back and forth from those corporations. When they pay into the city of Seattle, it pays dividends back to them as well as corporations. And what has resulted is the ability to now bring in about $250 million a year. And um, that is going into housing, Green New Deal investments, equitable development initiative, and economic uh, resilience. That's small business and arts and culture investments and workforce development. So quite frankly, um, this has helped to buoy the local economy in Seattle. We put about $86 million a year into the general fund to prevent austerity cuts, reductions, that kind of thing, right when people needed it most. So that's Jumpstart, and it's it's a sort of our signature um, public policy that we worked on for tax Do policy. you know how many um, how many corporations participated in that yes i do now i gotta think up that number it's um it's a few hundred it's not it's not the largest corporations i can try and get that number for us too so yeah that's cool super interesting yeah (laughs) um let's let's shift real quick yep um, you know, we're, we're, we we touched a little bit about just for uh, we talked about homelessness. We talked about housing. Um, what you know, we, we have an opponent uh, that you're running against. Um, she does have um, some thoughts about public safety, law enforcement. How would you describe yours? What would you uh, you know, that's something that we've always talked about here in White Center. Specifically, we have our own issues. They're very specific. And I'm pretty sure it happens all over the place. But. We're think it's called inside white center right. so why might as well right um how would you describe your philosophy your thought on public safety here so i was listening in on a north highline community center or sorry community council meeting just a few weeks ago and i would say that the thoughts that i have about public safety were well articulated by the detective from the sheriff's office who was on the line And he was telling the community members from North Highline um, Community Council about how, yes, they have seen um, increases in certain types of crime. And from his own lips, he said, but I would call many of these crimes um, crimes of survival, where we have people who are really struggling to make ends meet and um, have maybe self-medicated in some way, have a, a crisis of addiction a mental health crisis that they're dealing with, we need to get those folks connected to the services that can help treat them. Those crimes are something that can be served by case managers and um, pre-arrest diversion programs. And he even went on to mention uh, the LEAD program, uh, which is helping people get into services and treatment programs instead of going to jail. That, I think, summarizes the philosophy that I've tried to use to how we invest public dollars into public safety. 
anything that we can do to get people into um, pre-arrest diversion strategies to help them get onto the right path is going to help reduce the cost of treating people in the long term because it's very costly to just jail people. And it is going to improve the likelihood that they will be rehabilitated and be able to be productive members of our community. If instead people go to jail, it's much more likely that they cycle back into either more violent crimes or additional um, uh, additional hardship from having to go into jail in the first place. I think a big difference between um, my opponent and I is that uh, when the sheriff's office says something like that, it points to what has been proven. It is proven that it is more important to get people into treatment and health services when the root cause of why they are behaving the way they are is actually health-related. That is true of mental health crises. That is true of substance addiction crises. And for those who are concerned about freeing up officers to be able to respond to calls, when you have a case manager who responds to those types of calls instead of an armed officer, it actually frees up the armed officer to go to something else more important. That, I think, can help us improve retention and recruitment by making sure that armed officers are focused on actually reducing crime and responding to crime instead of something that could better be treated by a case manager and a uh, counselor. So, man, I'm taking all the questions, Pat. No, that's you, okay. You fo- yeah. Well, I was, I was thinking about, um, when I think about uh, funds to the police department, to funding the police, I always think, are they just putting more people out on the street? Are they just giving us more police officers or do they get the training? Do the ones that we already have get the training support that I need for them to have, whether it's, you know, more time at the, at the range or it's, um, being able to be in more situations where they're not triggered by, Mm -hmm. you know, by a, a traffic stop or whatever, you know what I'm saying? And so hiring. Yeah. And so, or yeah, being able to hire people who are of the community or people who are from communities like ours that don't get nervous when they're, you know, when they've got somebody pulled over. So I guess those are my thoughts about while you were talking, I was also thinking that as well. Well, I think, you know, the, the region here, and this is true of the Sheriff's Department and Seattle, um, we, like the entire nation, are dealing with fewer people that want to go into law enforcement. Right. Mm-hmm. I think locally, some, including probably my opponent, want to blame that on a conversation that, you know, the nation's been involved in about how we redirect funding to upstream solutions. But across the nation, and this is true of the Washington Post, who put out a report in June, they said... All of these police departments cannot just keep throwing money at a problem. We can't keep trying to recruit officers from other jurisdictions by offering hiring bonuses. We cannot just put more money into the system when fundamentally fewer people are coming to this profession because they may have questions about the type of um, interactions they've had with officers in the past. Instead of just putting more money into the system, we should be thinking about how we're freeing up officers to not respond to situations where they don't have a solution for people. I talk to first responders, including the firefighters, who tell me, 
you know, it is demoralizing right. to be out there and not have a place to right. bring people. I see the same people. I know their names. I know the crisis they're dealing with. And I don't have a landing zone to bring them. And it would help if I could have bring them somewhere. But right now, I just feel like I'm taking people to Harborview or I'm taking them to jail. And it's a revolving door. Um, and so it's less what I hear from the first responders is that it's um, more about how we offer solutions for people to have a place to go to recover and less about putting funding in just for training. I will say, though, you know, uh, to, to correct the record and make sure that everyone who's out there who's trying to make decisions on the election, no, I, as the budget chair, have helped to ensure that there is the funding for the Seattle Police Department and every single dollar that the uh, department, the mayor, the chief asked for for the hiring plan has been funded. That There seems to be a lot of confusion out there. Hiring, retention, recruitment funds have all been put in, and the Seattle Police Department has not been able to use all of those dollars despite their best efforts. They haven't been able to reach their hiring goals despite their best efforts. So I think there's some truth to the conversation that's been uh, summarized in the Washington Post and is being experienced across the nation. We ought to be thinking about how we reorient policing to be less of the first responder to those health crises, create the alternative staffing models and allow for the high needs calls to be responded to by officers, but let case managers and social workers and um, and nurses respond to those healthcare crises. That frees up our officers and it also makes sure that the, those who need services are not being met with um, someone who might be coming in thinking that it's a violent situation when it's really a health situation. So how soon can we stand something like that up? I hear your vision. It seems like it's a... Uh... It seems like it's the right maybe move for certain aspects of the mm -hmm. safety within our community. My thought is, how do you execute that? How do you stand it up before it actually, and what do you do in the meantime? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I'm visiting libraries where I feel like I don't, I would never let my, my daughter or my son walk to the library on their own. I would never let them walk home from school, you know, and I walked home from school. I walked to the library growing up. What do you say to families that are in that situation right now? You know, you only have your kids at this certain amount of time until they become teenagers and then adults. But we're having to wait for this idea or this this uh, new way of thinking public safety. But at the same time, immediately, we're not feeling safe. Like, well, how, do, how, how I guess what is the best thing to tell a family that's in that situation? Well, the good news is that the city of Seattle has just already stood up the um, community center um, crisis care department, the community safety and communication center, the CSCC is the name of it. And then just this last week launched the care department, the new department that has the dual response model that goes out. So it brings an officer with the case manager and they respond to calls directly. The reason that both of those programs are incredibly important, and, and I should rephrase that. They're not programs. They're entire new departments focused on answering 911 calls, assessing if it's a health-related emergency. And if so, if a dual response can be sent, they're dispatching that dual, dual responders um, system instead of an officer. It is live now. And we are putting money in this year's budget to uh, add additional staff members there. But it starts with who's answering the call, getting 911 operators to assess if it's a health-related call, deploying the right person, and in some cases, a dual response with the case with the case managers, 
and then um, ensuring that there's the time for those dual responders to, to respond. Uh, we've also scaled up the Health One model. If you're familiar with those vans that have firefighter stickers on the side, they're called Health One. It's a firefighter with a case manager and a social worker who drive around. Sorry, I should say firefighter, a nurse, and a uh, social worker who drive around and um, respond to 911 calls. When I did a ride along with them, all five of the calls were mental health related in nature. You don't need an officer responding to someone who is having 911 called just because they happen to have no pants and they're on the waterfront. They have no pants because they're having a mental health crisis, right? And 911 dispatched the Health One team. The case manager was able to calm the person down, gave them clothes, gave them food, got on the phone, connected them with their um, sister, and immediately, instead of having that person go get arrested for public indecency, they instead were connected back to their family. That's the type of system that's already being stood up in Seattle. And I would love to do more of that at King County. King County has some models that the sheriff's office noted in the conversation with North Highline that I think with additional investment and scaling up in partnerships with local jurisdictions, we can do more of. Cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I think, um, I think we'd love to give you the last word. We're, yeah. we're about to wrap up and we'd love to give you the last word. Can we frame it this way? Yes. What do you want folks and families yeah. in White Center to know? Um, I meant context-wise. Yeah. You're leaving Seattle, council member. I mean, now you're coming to the county to do the same thing. You know, that's that's going to be a, a frame of thought for right. most folks. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, we're unincorporated. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't got a mayor besides <laughs> Pat. There but, we go. You know, you know, she can only swing as much as she can. You know, she get tired. <laughs> but really, it's just that seat that really kind of can make a lot of moves for us. Yeah. So what do you want folks in this area to know? Uh, I would want folks to know that I am here to listen and act. It's not about just listening. It's about taking what I hear and putting it into action, recognizing that King County Council is the council, is the city council, is the mayor, is the everything for the jurisdictions like White Center and Vashon Island. You need action from your elected official, and I will do that. I think that that's why I've been able to earn the support and the endorsement of Sili Savusa, right, who has been living and working in White Center and hearing from the community what they want. She has endorsed my campaign because she's seen me in action, listening and following the lead of community most affected by um, public policies that haven't included them in the past. And she wants to see me in this role. I think it's why small businesses in White Center like Napantla and Jake and Judy, who I've known for a long time, have hosted an event just last week and four events as I've run for office to say they want me in this role because they know that I'm going to listen to small businesses and invest in art and culture. I've been honored to be able to work with partners like White Center Pride in supporting um, the call for immediate action when Lumberyard could not get the permit necessary to open up right before their Pride events and made, made it a priority to make sure that this small business who was serving the community, who had been impacted by this hate crime, actually had someone answering the call. Like, I will be there. I will listen. I will help make sure that public policies reflect the community and that we see... Um, your policy is directly reflected in the King County policies. So it's exciting for me to be here. I want to, you know, just say, like, this is my community. I live on in North Delridge, but we come to White Center all the time. 
and I am excited to, to make sure that our community has greater representation uh, and representative democracy um, will be served if I'm able to win the seat. And I do appreciate that uh, Councilmember McDermott has been uh, a leader and many people have appreciated his leadership, but I uh, want to build on that by making sure that I'm out there hearing from you and, and uh, to our Latino community. Having someone who represents you uh, in that seat would be my honor to break that glass ceiling. Well, thank you, Teresa. Nice to be with you. And um, I do have a lot to think about. <laughs> I'm going to lunch with Katie after this. And this is what we're going to talk about, Katie. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. I can't even think as fast as you talk. I know. That's right. Right. <laughs> Very impressive. So, where, yeah. where are you going after lunch? Where are you going I'm to lunch? I'm not sure. Where do you want to go? <laughs> Maybe classic eats. I don't know. Yes. Nice. Nice. Yes. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. To We'd love to down. have you back. Too. We'd love to come back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been another episode of Inside White Center. Um, the election. Uh, what is this special? Yes. The so November seventh. Uh, go get your ballots. Um, go turn it in. Uh, go out there vote. Uh, we got some highline situation there also yeah, and, school, uh, board. School, board. school board but right now we're talking about district eight, eight. district so, eight is the best it's the best <laughs> i mean you're not biased or anything no no okay cool. something there yeah district yeah yeah eight it's great <laughs> yeah oh the link there you go put it on the shirt all right but uh well, thank you so much for your time teresa and uh best of luck to you and whatever happens in the future look forward to continuing again. same right. thank you so much